Avatars. Pure evil. Famine, pestilence, war, disease, and death. They rule this world. The unchained elements of the powers of darkness are lying in ambush. Beware! The boat can leave now. Tell the crew. This is Cannibal Holocaust. Horror cinemas underrated, unreleased, and unbelievable. Welcome horror fans to the debut episode of Cannibal Holocaust. My name is Tom. I will be your host as we take a look together at horrors underrated, unreleased, and unbelievable. Now before we get to what this podcast is all about, let me quickly just tell you a bit about myself. I am, of course, a longtime passionate fan of the horror genre. I've hosted a show on YouTube called Horrors Ball for well over 10 years, which includes an annual award show in which I celebrate the best films that modern horror has to offer. I have been an extreme metal vocalist in various bands for more than two decades, along with my beautiful wife, and I have a wonderful and talented daughter who just so happens to be a young horror filmmaker. So my life has been very much invested in the arts. Okay, so enough about me. Let me now present to you what Cannibal Holocaust shall entail. As I said earlier, and as is said in the show's promo, the three themes that will be explored are the genres underrated, unreleased, and unbelievable. So some episodes will feature a horror film that I feel is underrated and overlooked. Others will discuss a film that has been unjustly forgotten and has not yet received a proper release in the physical media and streaming world, which in hopes I will later be able to update the film as no longer unreleased as a respective distributor has decided to, alas, give the film its due. And lastly, I will have episodes dedicated to the genre's many unbelievable stories, whether it be a particular film's production, the people involved, a film's impact, or a controversy. And for this debut episode, we will be jumping right into the unbelievable. And I figured it would be apropos to begin with the film that is honored in the name of the show, a film that is loved and loathed, a film that no matter where you stand on it, there is one fact that can't be denied. Ruggiero Deodato's Italian cannibal film, Cannibal Holocaust, is one of the most provocative, controversial, and truly unbelievable productions in not only the horror genre, but in the history of cinema. So grab your sunscreen and your best insect repellent and join me as we take a vacation to the Green Inferno. let me ask you this. What are some things that you have made in your life? I can say that I've made a lot of music. I made a kid, so that's pretty cool. I even made one of those ugly ashtrays for my mother, who never smoked, by the way, when I was in kindergarten. The fact that this film was made is quite incredible. A film like this will never be made again, and I think discussing it can be just as overwhelming as the production itself. There is just so much to cover, but I think this episode can appeal to everyone whether you love or hate the film or are just ambivalent towards it. It would also be naive of me to automatically assume that every horror fan is aware of the film and or the many stories associated with it. So let me provide a quick synopsis. A young documentary crew travels to the Amazon to study an indigenous cannibal tribe. The crew goes missing and their footage is found by a rescue party. And we subsequently get to see what happened to said filmmakers. Now let's begin with addressing the elephant in the room. Many great films have a certain stigma, unfair or not, 
attached to it. For example, the French film Irreversible, which is a favorite of mine, and its eight-minute rape scene. And with this film, the infamous Scenes of Animal Cruelty. Cannibal Holocaust is one of my favorite horror films of all time. Now, do I condone such scenes? Of course not. We all know at times that art can swim in some murky waters with questionable behavior by the artists themselves. It certainly took some time for me to reconcile with such atrocities. That being said, I can also perhaps be more forgiving in that one, the animals killed were later used for food, and two, it's kind of interesting that because of its genre, that Cannibal Holocaust has been singled out by critics while other films that also contain real anim animal mutilation, such as El Topo, The Rules of the Game, Wake and Fright, and Apocalypse Now are deemed classics and have been largely immune to such condemnation. So before we end this episode with a proper assessment of the film's impact and legacy, let's first get to the production itself and its subsequent fallout. Principal photography for Cannibal Holocaust began on June 4, 1979 in the jungles of the Amazon in Leticia, Colombia. Deodato's idea was greatly influenced by the Mondo exploitation documentaries, which were sensationalistic in its depictions of various cultures and customs from around the world. Now this wasn't even Deodato's first foray into the cannibal subgenre, as he had already helmed the film Last Cannibal World. But he was ready to up the ante, so to speak, in delivering more gore, more nudity, and more depravity. Leticia was only accessible by aircraft, and then from there, the cast and crew would need to travel by boat each day to reach the jungle filming locations. Now realize this, after shooting each day, the film canisters would have to be transferred to safety via these small boats over dangerous waters infested by piranhas, caimans, and anaconda. We've all seen Hollywood actors and filmmakers in those Blu-ray bonus features discuss their crazy filming stories and the harsh conditions they had to endure. Fuck you. This, my friends, was dangerous cinema. This was maverick filmmaking. I personally, however, cannot even fathom the anxiety that this element must have generated. Perhaps not the best analogy, but being in bands over the years, I've been a part of the creation of many records, so I can't imagine pouring so much into your art, whatever it may be, and then have to worry if what you just created could be lost or damaged. Sure, some of you, and rightfully so, may consider this filmmaking irresponsible and idiotic. For me personally, though, I think it's incredibly amazing, badass, and fucking so horror movie. And while I would never want to be involved in such nerve-wracking artistry, I respect it greatly, which leads to a point back to Hollywood. Take, for example, a film like last year's highly praised war film, 1917. I have yet to see the film, but certainly plan to. Now a film like that and its brazen and captivating cinematography is set up to succeed. Not to take anything away from the director, Sam Mendes, and his talents or vision, but the means and tools that he and all other Hollywood filmmakers have at their disposal is astonishing. The budget and talented crews with which to work with, not to mention the expert and widespread promotion of the films. While the feat of completing a film is certainly never easy, when backed by a huge budget, reaching a level of quality and success is. And for that reason, I think films like Cannibal Holocaust, and to a much greater extent, independent and low-budget films, which I love, deserve a far greater amount of respect and admiration. Rather than money, these films are fueled by ingenuity and determination. So okay, let's get back to the jungle. Now, as you can imagine, the stress of cargo transport, 
wasn't the only hardship to combat. Filming was delayed often due to either excessive heat or rainstorms. It was commonplace for the cast and crew to have to deal with the influx of insects and snakes. This isn't camping people, and we aren't just talking insects, we are talking Amazon insects. Skeeters the size of small dogs. Well, something like that. Let's face it, the Amazon is no place for the filming of a movie. But this is Italian horror, and unfortunately, for the cast and crew, the abhorrent location conditions weren't the only contributor of difficulty. There was also Ruggiero Deodato himself. Actor Carl York, who played Alan Yates, the leader of these documentarians, described the Amazonian set as having a, quote, a level of cruelty unknown to me, end quote. Actor Robert Kerman would be uh, even less complimentary, describing Deodato as, quote, remorseless and uncaring, as the two would often argue. Kerman would also mention the poor treatment of the natives by Deodato. Quote, he was a sadist. He was particularly sadistic to people that couldn't answer back, that were Colombian, and people that were Italian but could be sent home. End quote. Kerman also stormed off set after one of the animal killings. Actor Perry Perkinen cried after the infamous turtle slaughter, and York's character, in one particular scene, was supposed to be the one to shoot a pig. He refused leaving the dubious duty to actor Luca Barbareschi, who had grown up on a farm and therefore had no problem with it. Deodato had tried to convince York, stating it wouldn't go to waste as they were going to eat the pig later that evening for dinner. York responded by saying, quote, You see, that pig and I, we rode in the boat this morning. He and I are friends. The rest of them ate the pig that night. I ate fish. End quote. Tensions between the cast and Deodato were further heightened, when pay became erratic, and in the natives' case, no compensation at all. There were also plenty of other intense scenes to attend to, a rape simulation of a native, and a burning of a hut as natives wait inside. The stress of the shoot also would, understandably, take its toll on the chemistry between the actors. In one particular instance, before a love scene, lead actress Francesca Ciardi suggested to co-star York that they have real intercourse offset to make the scene easier. York declined, making the relationship all the more awkward. Filming in New York City as, as well as a set in Rome would conclude the shoot. Many of the actors involved figured this rather unique experience was over. Little did they know, it was just the beginning. The Aftermath of Horror Films particularly ones that were portrayed as being authentic, have provided plenty of interesting and compelling fodder over the years, such as the Blair Witch Project and its brilliant marketing campaign, and who can forget the Asian film, Flower of Flesh and Blood, as part of the second guinea pig series that, in 1991, saw actor Charlie Sheen report the film to the Federal Bureau of Investigation as he thought he had witnessed a genuine snuff film after a friend gave him a bootleg copy at a party. Underground filmmaker Fred Vogel, would leave his faux snuff film, August Underground, in unmarked envelopes on the side of highways. So while this marketing stunt is nothing new, once again, Cannibal Holocaust set the bar, even in its subsequent response. Deodato intentionally created a level of mystery around his film. He wanted it to seem like true found footage. Previous to the film's completion, Deodato had the deceased actor sign contracts which ensured that they would not appear in any type of media or any film and commercial work for one full year following the film's release. 
This was unprecedented at the time in cinema marketing. With the actors laying low combined with the film's wonderfully executed gore effects and actual animal killings, the film's goal of authenticity was fully accomplished. Unfortunately for Deodato, a little too well. Following its premiere in Italy, it was ordered to be seized by a local magistrate, and Deodato was arrested on obscenity charges, charges that would later escalate to multiple counts of homicide. Again, this was unprecedented. To prove his innocence, Deodato finally got a hold of actor Luca Barbareschi, who then struggled to round up the rest of the cast as they were contractually not to be found. While their testimony essentially exonerated Deodato, he would also have to explain in court in great detail the ways he achieved some of the gore gags, particularly, in my opinion, one of the most brutally iconic moments in genre history, the infamous Impaled Girl. He explained how they used a hidden bicycle seat, which was attached to an iron pole, in which the actress sat. She then held a light piece of balsa wood in her mouth while looking skyward, thus providing the wonderful illusion of impalement. As the explanation would not suffice on its own, Deodato provided the court with photos of the girl interacting with the crew after the scene was filmed. So while all personal charges would be dropped, the Italian courts, as a result of the genuine scenes of animal cruelty, decided to ban the film, which both helped and hurt its initial reception and distribution. As premieres continued around the world, reaction to the film was, not surprisingly, a mixed bag, both in revenue and critically. Initially, in the 10 days before it was first seized, the film grossed nearly $2 million, coincidentally in Japan of all places. The film grossed over $21 million, which, for that time, was second only to the international hit E.T. So while the film was going over quite well with the average horror fan's audience, most critics would deem the film as sensationalist horror garbage. Legendary filmmaker Sergio Leone, however, wrote a letter to Deodato, which included perhaps a prophetic statement. Leone would write, Quote, Dear Ruggiero, what a movie. The second part is a masterpiece of cinematographic realism. But everything is so real, I think you will get in trouble with all the world. End quote. The film's response here in the States didn't seem to be as, well, noticeable. While a provocative exploitation film of this ilk would normally be quite successful on, say, the 42nd Street scene in New York City, Cannibal Holocaust was not. It was even outshined by its cannibal Italian horror brethren, or Myrtle Lindsay's classic gut muncher, Cannibal Ferox. And while Lindsay's film also contained many of the same nasty traits, perhaps it was better received because it just feels a bit different. While I love that film as well, Cannibal Ferox just doesn't have the same cinematic potency as Holocaust. It feels less disturbing, less downbeat, and I suppose a little less authentic, which according to American audience at that time, in the early to mid-80s, Ferox was just more entertaining. And while the film's controversial residue would remain for a few more years, due to its continued ban in many countries, the film wasn't given the proper distribution to reap any rewards of the burgeoning home video scene that was filling the aisles in sto video stores across North America. Cannibal Holocaust, while notorious, ultimately sailed into obscurity, becoming, at best, that film that you and your friend would talk about in your bedroom, hoping some foreign bootleg, most likely cut, would end up in the hands of a friend's older brother. But in most cases, it would be that film that few saw and few talked about. The film with the real animal killings. So, as decades have now passed and the horror genre is strong and as popular as ever, let us now assess the film itself, its impact, and its legacy, and the film's meaning. 
From strictly a fan-based perspective, Cannibal Holocaust made a hell of a comeback and can ultimately be considered a great success and no longer that obscure film. While the animal killings will forever be its damning stigma along with a diatribe of discontent, thanks to the evolution of home video and technology, the film has now been seen, loved and hated by many horror fans around the world. Much of this attention can be attributed to the late Sage Stallone, son of Sylvester Stallone, whose passion for cult cinema cultivated the creation of the distribution label Grindhouse Releasing, which gave us horror fans a chance to see and own films like Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox for that matter, on DVD and later, of course, the Blu-ray format, complete with bonus features full of anecdotes that once could be viewed as just horror folklore. Stallone produced the documentary Alan Yates Uncovered. At the time, it was actor Gabrielle Yorks, who would go on to be a professor at Berkeley, first time agreeing to discuss the controversial film. If you have enjoyed what you've heard on this show, I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. Sage helped bring the actors of the film to meet fans at horror conventions, fans that the actors never imagined they even had. Director Ruggiero Deodato himself has made appearances at these conventions many times over the years. The cannibal cult is certainly alive and well. I wonder who the real cannibals are. Those are the final words uttered at the end of Cannibal Holocaust, an obvious social comment condemning the behaviors of the fallen documentarians. But it also punctuates the fact that Deodato's film is a dichotomy and presents a true conundrum to the viewer. Is Deodato, the actual filmmaker, the true cannibal himself? Are his actions for the sake of art, and perhaps a message, more deplorable than the characters portrayed within the film? Whether its resonance leaves you in the camp of praise or the abhorrent, the question of a justified hypocrisy is legitimate, intriguing, and perhaps much more complex than one might think. Let's take for example the book by Colin Waddell as part of the Devil's Advocate series, which for one I highly recommend and was used in some of the research for this episode. Waddell, who certainly does not shy away from criticizing Deodato and his actions, would go on to become friends with the director, and in this book makes an incredibly compelling case that the film can be interpreted as a postmodern Vietnam metaphor. An interesting angle to say the least, but one that merits a deeper look. Deodato, an intelligent man, a filmmaking professional, and deemed a humanitarian by many close to him, after landing on that foreign soil in Leticia, made the decision to slaughter wildlife and exploit native people. This confusion of morality is as potent as any of the on-screen atrocities themselves. Ultimately, in this paradox that is presented, does the profundity of Deodato's social commentary ring hollow? It is a question that has been asked by many critics over the years. The character of Alan Yates and his unabashed ignorance is vehemently condemned throughout Cannibal Holocaust, especially in the final act as we, depending on where your tastes lie, are treated to his and his companions' grisly demise. The anthropologist that finds Yates and his crew's footage feels the decision to make the video available for public consumption by a media outlet would be disgraceful, exploitative, and just plain immoral. Yet, as the actual viewer, what do we just watch? Deodato has said that a big inspiration for the film and its narrative style was violence on television news programs, how explicit it could be as well as, at times, how it could be manipulated. Does this argument lose any credibility in Deodato's, quote, preaching what he does not practice behavior? Is he indicting the medium itself, whether on a news broadcast or a film, using the camera to, in fact, exploit and expose, to distort and contort reality, what is staged and what is, in fact, real? Or is it a little bit of both, 
as in his film. I wasn't alive during the Vietnam War, so I can't attest to what evenings were like in living rooms across the United States as families watched news broadcasts informing the public on war stories. But I can recollect my own living room experiences. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the live airstrikes in Desert Storm, and how could anyone forget the footage of desperate victims jumping out of office windows moments before the second tower collapsed. As Colin Waddell states in his book, quote, Cannibal Holocaust is a film about film and about the medium's very potential to fictionalize fact, lest we remember the Vietnam War itself was fought on a lie, end quote. Deodato, a one-time assistant to filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, was therefore a product of the neorealist movement. Films that were set in authentic locations, traditionally using non-professional actors, and often covering themes of poverty, oppression, and injustice. On March 16, 1968, in the small village of Mylai, a company of American soldiers brutally killed over 500 unarmed civilians, including many women and children, who were also raped and mutilated. The horrible massacre was covered up for a year before it was, was eventually reported by the American press. Had actual footage of these atrocities been broadcast on American TVs, would the war have ended sooner? Think of the parallels then to the fictitious film crew in Cannibal Holocaust that pillaged a village and the rapes and carnage that ensued. Young people from the West traveling to foreign jungle soil. As Waddell writes, the Vietnam War may have been televised, but what was not shown and told was far greater than what was. And this aspect of the conflict is undoubtedly mediated in Cannibal Holocaust. Can we not view the character of Yates as similar to that of Officer William Calley, the psychopathic instigator of the My Lai Massacre, who lives as a free man thanks to a presidential pardon? Crimes committed in third world countries have never been seen as equal to those lives taken in the West, and the Vietnam War was and it is proof of this. One of the war's most decorated soldiers, Anthony Herbert, mentioned the common procedure of American execution teams wiping out entire families but trying to then make it look as though the Viet Cong themselves had done the killing. Cannibal Holocaust presents its documentary team as highly decorated, award-winning professionals. They are even described as real pros. In other words, trust the camera. What it records has to be believed. What is left out is entirely irrelevant. When Cannibal Holocaust concludes, and we are told that the film within a film that Yates and his team have reduced is to be destroyed, the slate is wiped clean again. What is not on camera did not happen. The medium of film is everything, law, proof, and justice. In Deodato's mock reality, the horrors of the war zone can only be evidenced when the camera is jarringly prodded into the most insensitive of acts. He goes on to add, quote, Cannibal Holocaust is a pivotal evocation of the Western arrogance that created the scenario for the Vietnam War itself. Faraway lands with peasants and hamlets are devalued as mere sound bites on the television because they do not matter, and their destruction can always be justified with some editing and a little narrative. End quote. After Yates and his team discover, in an iconic scene, that impaled girl, we are to assume that they may have been responsible for this act, and then he turns to the camera and acts sympathetic as he questions the heinous crime. Pure manipulation, filtered information, again, parallels to the Vietnam War. While other events, such as a pregnant woman tied to a pole while her newborn child is buried in mud, Yates and his crew are truly spectators, 
and so establishes yet another paradox. Deodato indirectly invites us to question the integrity of a reporter that captures and ultimately profits from footage of atrocity. Ron Haverly was an infamous photographer of the My Lai Massacre. He did nothing to stop the rape. He did nothing to stop the killing. He did, however, retain copyrights to his images and profits from them to this day. So then what is Deodato's moral ambiguity in filming the actual killings of real animals? He is the one going into foreign soil amidst a different culture and essentially doing what he wants. Waddell writes, quote, Deodato in his own cunning way is demanding we question even his use of realism for he is the chief manipulator of cannibal holocaust, end quote. And in his poignant commentary that the, quote, real cannibals are those who feel cultural exploitation is acceptable, Deodato himself, ironically, is the biggest perpetrator. Horror cinema has the propensity to elicit fear, anxiety, discomfort, and in the case of extreme films, which revel in their transgression of boundaries, disgust. For this film, the authentic on-screen deaths of a large turtle, a tarantula, a boa constrictor, a squirrel monkey, and a pig, the simulated on-screen violence of rapes, genital mutilation, severed limbs and torsos, decapitations, impalements, and so on. Now I must stop myself in fear that I am conveying the wrong impression to you listening. All of the negativity surrounding this film that I have presented here is unquestionably warranted. But that said, I want to conclude this episode with the positive. The fact that I consider Cannibal Holocaust to be one of the greatest horror films ever made, and as I said earlier, one of my favorites. For starters, the score by genre mainstay, Riz Ortolani, is one of my all-time favorites. While containing plenty of wonderfully eerie and ominous tones that you'd expect in a horror film, the film's unforgettably beautiful theme is the perfect juxtaposition of the on-screen depravity. And speaking of the score, here's a little pro tip for the romantics out there. Few may realize that said beautiful theme track is also quite the aphrodisiac. Want to round third with that special guy or gal? Forget Barry White, throw that track on and it's time for sexual healing, cannibal style. The pure authenticity of the locations only fuels the film's unnerving effectiveness. No set dressing needed, and the gore effects are nothing short of incredible and at times iconic. The cast and its performances cement the overwhelming sense of realism, and like many true cinematic classics, they hold up over time, and time has served Cannibal Holocaust very well. Still banned in some countries, still debated, and still very socially and politically relevant, all while many other extreme films have come and since been forgotten. The film has garnered and horrified new generations of fans, a true legacy, and a true classic. And lastly, what about this filmmaker? Someone who cannot avoid judgment from even his fans, including myself. Well, I think time has also served him well. I've had the privilege of meeting Roger Deodato on two different occasions over the years. Once at the Festival of Fear in Toronto, Canada, and the other at Chiller Theatre in New Jersey. While I didn't get to pick his brain for as long as I'd like to, it was certainly evident what a passionate and kind man he is, appreciative of his fans, and of his film's long-lasting impact. He has since come to grips with his regrets and guilt over the animal cruelty. So much so, he has donated thousands of dollars to various animal shelters and charities. 
When he attends a convention, he now sells a small toy turtle, complete with the film's logo on top of its shell. All the proceeds go to charity. And yes, I of course own one. My intent of this debut episode was to objectively discuss a film I love. If by some chance you've never seen the film or chose not to after hearing about the infamous animal cruelty, there is a cruelty-free edited version. So please give that version a try. And whether you've never seen it, never will, love it or hate it, or perhaps just don't care about it anymore, what we can all agree on is the fact that Cannibal Holocaust was even made is truly unbelievable. A film that will never be made again. Well, I hope you have enjoyed our trip to the Green Inferno. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen, and please tell your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, and your parents. Well, if you are an orphan, I'm sorry. But tell someone to check it out. Using proper social distancing, of course. In these current crazy times, please be safe, everyone. And I hope you will come back and join me next time on Cannibal Holocast. Mm-hmm.